Hey, 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 English 11. What's up, guys? Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about women in The Great Gatsby. What a topic. Um, now, listen, y'all. During this podcast, I'm going to reference that Crazy John Green video that we watched before we um, were all sent home for the year unexpectedly. Because I, I do think as crazy as that man is, he does a really good job at articulating this concept that really identified the Roaring Twenties, which uh, which was, if, if you recall, he said it was an era of contradictions. So people are making big progress, but people are also being pushed back down. And and women, if you remember, this is a time period where they're feeling more free. Um, they're cutting their hair. They're dressing differently. Birth control becomes available. They're smoking cigarettes. They're partying. Um, and so they have all this behavior that indicates, you know, they're much more wild and untamed, but then at, at the, at the end of the day, nothing really changes for them in this decade. They still have a lot of the same limitations, um, despite all of this, you know, what appears to be progress for them. And Fitzgerald does a tremendous job at creating a character, Daisy Buchanan, who embodies all of those things. She has a sense of freedom. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but you, you can guess like she can't actually get very far because she is a woman. So you're going to see women really start to push forward in terms of progress and then ultimately also get pushed back down. And the person who's always pushing people back down is of course Tom. Um, there was this hilarious moment in the John Green video where he talks about the backlash of white Protestant men as um, the Harlem Renaissance is occurring and we have women who are getting the right to vote. At the exact same time, again, an era of contradictions, we see an emergence in the Ku Klux Klan, right? So just as people are trying to push forward, white Protestant men have this desire to push people back down. And John Green has this hilarious comment where he says, turns out all right for you in the end, white Protestant males. And he's right. What he, what he is trying to say is like, they become quote, what's the word I'm looking for? White Protestant men become fearful. And I'm putting that in quotes because there, there's obviously nothing to be afraid of based on the fact that no progress occurs for people for like 30 more years. Um, they like act fearful, but at the same time, they, they never lose. They never lose. Um, this is a theme in real life. And if you guys were in the class period right now, if we were in class together right now, we would just go through a list of powerful white men who have been accused of terrible things, who have suffered absolutely no consequences. And although recent, like now, you know, we're seeing some powerful men who are, um, being, brought to justice for things they've done, but this is a very new era for us. And Tom Buchanan is really the huge jerk of the novel. And he's, he's going to prove to us Fitzgerald is going to create a character who says like, this guy's always going to win. Nobody can beat this guy because he is who he is. He is old money and he's white and he's a male. And with those three things, like he, he won't lose. And it would be great if we could say a hundred years later, that wasn't the case. But I think that if we were all in class together, you guys could probably think of situations where a white male with a ton of money um, is able to evade all responsibility for anything that he does. Um, so 
the I guess the first quote I want to read on that same topic it happens in my book on page 17. And Nick arrives to, to the Buchanan home, and there's a little banter, but I'm going to get to that banter in a minute. Um, and they're, they're eating together, and Nick has – he's talking, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Tom starts to talk, and it says – civilization's going to pieces, broke out Tom violently. I've gotten to be a terrible pessimist about things. Have you read The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man Goddard? And that's all Tom talking. And then Nick says, well, no. I answered rather surprised by his tone. Well, this is Tom again. It's a fine book and everybody ought to read it. The idea is if we don't look out, the white race will be, will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proved. So that's all Tom talking. Um, Daisy makes fun of him. She says, Tom's getting very profound. So Daisy with an expression of unthoughtful sadness. He reads deep books with long words in them. What was the word we, well, these books are all scientific, insisted Tom, glancing at her impatiently. This fellow, still Tom, has worked out the whole thing. It's up to us who are the dominant race to watch out or all these other races will have control. And then Daisy again makes fun of him. Oh, we've got to beat them down, whispered Daisy, winking ferociously toward the fervent sun. Um, and then this goes on, and he talks about being a Nordic. And then Nick has this amazing analysis on the next page where he says, and this is Nick talking, there was something pathetic in his concentration, as if his complacency, more accurate than of old, was not enough to him anymore. When almost immediately the telephone rang inside. Okay, so we got to stop there because that's really the next scene. This is a super small detail in the sense that Tom will, will, I think there's one other remark about race later on in the book, but this is, it's a moment, but it's obviously crucial to understanding Tom's character. Um, Tom is a wealthy man in the 20s, which means that he will do absolutely anything to maintain his sense of control and power. And what he wants, he gets. That's the rule of being Tom. And you as the reader are going to dislike him 120%. And that's kind of the whole point, um, is that you have to just watch the rest of the character suffer because of his of, his, of what he does. And Fitzgerald is, of course, trying to point out to us, like, wh like why do these guys have so much power? Um it's, it's sad. And our country has sadly not changed a lot in many ways, but that's important to understanding Tom. So Tom is not just about keeping control of women. There's more than one woman in Tom's life. He, he's not just about maintaining control over the women that are in his life. He wants, he wants to control everybody. He doesn't want anyone else to have any power except him. And again, this is the mindset that Fitzgerald is trying to capture. Now, not all men in the book are like Tom. He's a very distinct character. Um, but he certainly has some, uh, some beliefs that we need to take note of. Okay, so let's talk about women. Daisy it has a lot of dialogue in chapter one. And she is funny. And I don't know if you can sense that about her. But she's got a personality to her. Um, what I'm about to talk about is pretty nuanced, but I still want to bring it up. When we have these conversations at dinner, it's important to note that like Tom never asks her a question. Um, Tom never really invites her into the conversation. Daisy is not there in Tom's eyes. I should say Daisy is not there to function as a personality, right? 
Well, then the question is, why is Daisy there for Tom? Well, I think that's pretty obvious. She's beautiful and she's wealthy. But beyond that, she she's not really valued by Tom. She makes fun of him a couple times. And um, he, he kind of snaps at her once, but um, he doesn't really pay attention to her. On the previous page, page 16, um, she says, uh, before I could, uh, so sorry, this is out of context, but anyway, she holds up her finger and she says, look, she complained. I heard it. We all looked. The knuckle was black and blue. You did it, Tom. She said, accusingly, I know you didn't mean to, but you did it. That's what I get for marrying a brute of a man, a big hulking physical specimen of, and then he says, I hate the word hulking, objected Tom crossly, even in kidding. Hulking, insisted Daisy. And so they have this, um, I don't know what the word is, like, he just, he doesn't even seem interested in her. It's kind of what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, she seems very flirtatious with Nick. I mean, she's not really flirting with him. That's just her personality. She has no romantic interest in him. Um, you know, but she says, I love to see you at my table, Nick. You remind me of a rose, an absolute rose. Um, and then there is this phone call and the phone call arrives at the end of this conversation about Tom being a Nordic. And it says, um, the telephone rang inside and the butler left the porch. Daisy seized upon the momentary interruption and leaned forward toward me. And she um, tries to like change the subject and it doesn't work. Okay. So at some point um, on page 19, it says, in the middle of dinner, Tom has left to take a phone call. Okay. And then Daisy like stands up and storms out. And all that's left at the table is Nick, who's kind of like, what's happening? And then this other character named Jordan Baker, who's a main character, and she's, she's very important. We'll talk about her. So on page, my page 19, it says, Miss Baker and I exchanged a short glance, consciously devoid of meaning, and I was about to speak up. I was about to speak when she sat up alert and said, shh, in a warning. And so then um, Nick's like, uh, okay. So he tries to talk to her, and then she says, don't talk. I want to hear what happens. And then... Nick says, is something happening? I inquired innocently. And then Jordan says, you mean to say you don't know, said Miss Baker, honestly surprised. I thought everybody knew. I don't. Why? She said hesitantly. Tom's got some woman in New York. Got some woman? I repeated blankly. Miss Baker nodded. And then Jordan adds, she might have not, she might have the decency not to telephone him during dinner time, don't you think? Um, and then they both come back to dinner, Daisy and Tom. And Daisy says like, it couldn't be helped. Um, okay. So the point here is that Tom is having an affair on Daisy. And of course, again, guys, this should not be a surprise to us. This is who Tom is. I have to read this one sentence because I honestly love it so much. Um, after they come to sit back down the first time from the phone interruption, it said, the telephone rang inside startlingly, and as Daisy shook her head decisively at Tom, the subject of the stables, in fact, all subjects, vanished into air. So the phone rings again, and Daisy gives him a look and shakes her head like, are you kidding me right now? And of course, Daisy knows about the affair. And what you're going to continuously ask yourself is like, why doesn't she do something about it? But again, this brings us back to the role of women in the 20s. What is she going to do? What, what's Daisy going to do? She's going to, what, file for divorce? And her and her daughter are just going to go off into the sunset. That is not the era that we're living in right now. Okay. Um, so the phone interrupts them again. 
and the whole thing kind of gets, you know, the whole dinner sort of gets, what's the word I'm looking for? Tainted by this interruption. Um, okay. Then on page 21, um, her and Daisy and Nick kind of steal away. Um, they go on to the verandas and they walk around and, um, Nick's trying to be polite. And so he says, I, he says, I asked what I thought would be some sedative questions about her little girl. So he can see she's kind of upset by the, by the dinner gone bad. And so he says, um, Hey, like, tell me about your daughter. And then Daisy says, I'm going to read this. We don't know each other very well, Nick. She said, suddenly, even if we are cousins, you didn't come to my wedding. And then he says, I wasn't back from the war, which is like such an excellent reason to not attend a wedding. That's true. She hesitated. Well, I've had a very bad time, Nick, and I'm pretty cynical about everything. Now, again, let's go back to what we know about Nick. He's the person that everyone confesses their sadness and their sins to. So she's telling him like, Nick, I'm a really unhappy person. And she is unhappy. Listen to what she says next. Evidently, she had reason to be. I waited, but she didn't say anymore. And after a moment, I returned rather feebly to the subject of her daughter. I suppose she talks and eats and everything. I mean, guys, the woman is not particularly interested in her daughter, right? That's very a very sad thing to say. Um, and then she says, oh, yes, yeah, she looked at me absently. Listen, Nick, let me tell you what I said when she was born. Would you like to hear? And he says, very much. And she says, it'll show you how I've forgotten to feel about things. Well, she was less than an hour old, and Tom was God knows where. I woke up out of the ether with an utterly abandoned feeling and asked the nurse right away if it was a boy or a girl. She told me it was a girl, so I turned my head away and wept. All right, I said, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. <sighs> okay, so we got to chop that up. Number one, notice again that like even an hour after the birth of his daughter, Tom is gone. And she says Tom is God knows where. She knows he's out with another woman when she's having a baby. Didn't I tell you guys we're going to hate this guy? Okay, so then she says that she wants her daughter to be a beautiful little fool. She says that's the best thing a woman can be. If we were in class, like we would really go nuts with this line. I mean, what does that mean? Why would she say that about her own daughter? Well, you got to think about the position that she's in. If she can stay ignorant to the affairs her husband's having, that's the only way she can really survive. And for the most, she does. I mean, she tries to turn the other way, but she knows that it's almost better to be foolish than to be knowledgeable because the knowledge is so hurtful. Anyway, she says that everything's terrible. Um, and she says, everybody thinks so. The most advanced people. And I know I've been everywhere and seen everything and done everything. She, her eyes flashed around her in a defiant way, rather like Tom's. And she laughed with a thrilling scorn. Sophisticated. God, I'm so sophisticated. So she's kind of saying like, I have all the money in the world. I've traveled everywhere. I've seen everything. And still it's, it's clearly bringing her no happiness. So it's important for us to know that about her because something is going to come her way. And we have to unravel a little bit more of a mystery before we get there. But we need to know that um, she's in this marriage and she doesn't really feel like she can get out. And it's easier for her to ignore her husband's affairs than it is to confront them because confronting them will bring her nothing. She doesn't seem to be very invested in the life of her child. 
And uh, she tells all of this to our narrator, Nick. Okay, the next thing we get on page, the last part of the chapter, pages 22 and 23, is this information about Jordan Baker. And one thing that we, or one important thing that we get about her is that she's actually a professional golfer. Um, So this is so fitting to us. Because Daisy is this, in many ways, very traditional female. She's young, she's married, and she has a kid. And she has no job. She has no profession. Um, From what we know, she has no education. She just basically became a teenager and then figured out who she wanted to marry. And that was like her life goal. On the other hand, we have Jordan Baker, who is a young single woman. And she plays a sport. And so for the 20s, this feels, again, very progressive. I think it's interesting um, that Fitzgerald does this with these two female characters. He gives us one character that's really stuck and then another character who's like kind of pushing forward, but it's still kind of tricky because the world really isn't ready for her. Um, Tom, again, on the same page says about Jordan Baker, she's a nice girl, said Tom after a moment. They ought not to let her run around the country this way. (laughs) So he's like, somebody should control that woman because she's basically just having a good time partying in New York City all summer. So anyway, um, okay, wait, I got to do one more thing. Um, all right, right before we, Nick gets back to his house. Oh, shoot, I have to do two more things. Right before Nick gets back to his house, we get this great conversation um, on my page 24 um, where it says they come back from the veranda and Tom says, did you give Nick a little heart to heart talk on the veranda demanded Tom suddenly. So he's kind of like, what'd you tell Nick about me? Right. That's like his main concern. And she says, did I, she looked at me. I can't seem to remember, but I think we talked about the Nordic race. This is of course, totally sarcastic. Yes, I'm sure we did. It sort of crept up on us. And the first thing, you know, and so she's making fun of him, like, you know, jabbing at the topic that he brought up earlier, but then Nick's sorry. Then Tom says, don't believe everything you hear, Nick. So he's already saying, like, my wife probably told you some lie about me. Um, and, of course, that's ridiculous. Daisy is being truthful. Okay. Ba-ba-da-na. Last thing. Last page of the chapter. Nick um, goes home to his house. Remember, he's on the other side of the bay. And he pulls up. And um, he... I got to read this from the last page. Okay. Um, So he, it's nighttime and it says the silhouette of a moving cat wavered across the moonlight and turning my head to watch it. I saw that I was not alone. So he's outside and it's a, it's a summer evening, but he realizes he's not by himself. 50 feet away, a figure had emerged from the shadow of my neighbor's mansion. That's Gatsby. And it was standing with his hands in his pockets regarding the silver pepper of the stars. Something in his leisurely movements and the secure position of his feet upon the lawn suggested that it was Mr. Gatsby himself come out to determine what share was his of our local heavens. I decided to call to him. Miss Baker had mentioned him at dinner and that would do for an introduction, but I didn't call to him for he gave a sudden intimation or movement that he was content to be alone. Then listen to what he does, guys. He stretched out his arms toward the dark water in a curious way. And far as I was from him, I could have sworn he was trembling. 
Involuntarily, I glanced seaward and distinguished nothing except a single green light, minute and far away, that might have been the end of a dock. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. What is Gatsby doing? What's that green light all about? Why is Gatsby slinking around in the dark by himself? Who is Jay Gatsby? Okay, so much more to talk about. Thank you for listening, guys. Um, Please turn in your chapter questions, or please do your chapter questions. Um, They're in Google Classroom under The Great Gatsby. And if you have any questions, you know where to find me. Have a good night.